So this is the fourth in the series of talks and explorations on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind. In the uh, first talk, which was in April, I gave a, a general introduction to the theme. Uh, and the second talk was uh, uh, adding the perspectives of neuroscience to this question of working with the judgmental mind. Uh, and then uh, last week, I talked about two broad ways of transforming the judgmental mind. How many people here have not been to any of those three sessions? Okay, so probably looks like about three quarters of the people have been to at least one. So I think what I'll do is I will give a very, very brief uh, clarification of what I mean by judgmental mind and then move on to the theme today, which is to go into a little more depth on the question of how we inquire and transform the judgmental mind more directly. <clears throat> so let me begin just with a cartoon. This shows a man in a hospital bed with a doctor <clears throat> talking to him. It looks like actually a surgeon. And the uh, title of the cartoon is The Surgery. And the uh, surgeon has about a, what, uh, a foot-high bottle that has a very tiny version of this man in it. And he says, um, congratulations, Mr. Meguen. We've successfully removed your inner critic. <laughs> um, if we could do that, I wouldn't need to have four or more talks on this topic of transforming the judgmental mind, of which the inner critic is one manifestation. And so, um, uh, given that... Uh, the inner critic is um, remarkably immune from standard biomedicine. <laughs> we will proceed with some other tools and perspectives. Uh, and I, th I think uh, helpful first just to give uh, definitions, for, especially for the people newer. And I'll, again, I'll be brief here. I'm using the judgmental mind to refer to ways that we are judgmental towards ourselves, towards others, towards situation in the world. Uh, and I want you to, I think, I think it's actually very helpful to do as we did last time, to think of a time in the last day or two or three when you were judgmental, either towards self or other. And we've seen that a large number of our examples in the past have come from driving. <laughs> you may have experienced it just a short time ago, a judgmental thought. So just reflect on some examples of being judgmental. In your own experience. And we'll come back to those in a moment. Uh, so being judgmental could manifest uh, towards oneself. Oh, I'm really, you know, I messed up again. 
you know, or it could be, uh, you know, I don't know, i just not sure I have it for this job. I don't know. There's, uh, you know, sometimes the judgments come without words. We can be judgmental about uh, another person. That person is so full of himself. Or that politician is a clear and present danger. <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, when I was driving this morning, I know, you know, I noticed, oh, another person tailgating at 60 miles an hour, like 30 feet behind you. Um, and what's characteristic of the judgmental mind is that uh, there's typically some kind of noticing or observation or discernment which gets linked with reactivity. And the reactivity we can often hear in the tone or the facial expressions. We can see it that way. And, the, uh, and it's important that the judgmental mind has those two aspects. We can distinguish the judgmental mind from ways of uh, judging, as we use that word in English, that are not judgmental. So we can talk about the judges at the swimming, the diving competition, judging the competitors, that dive was worth a, an 8.5, right? And that wouldn't necessarily be reactive. Could be, but not necessarily. Or we could say that the, the art critic made this judgment about the painting, and it wouldn't necessarily be reactive. We use judgment in that sense in English. Or the teacher judge the student's work to be above average or something like that. And those last examples, we often use the word judgment for that, but it's not used to mean that the, whatever happened was judgmental. So I'm focusing on the judgmental uh, expressions, manifestations, and so forth. And I'm going to be using the word judgment uh, to uh, refer to that which is judgmental. Even though in English we sometimes use judgment to mean something more neutral. For, for those more neutral uh, ways of seeing, I'll, I'll use words like assessment, evaluation, or discernment. So just a clarification about the language. So when I use the word judgment, I'm going to be pointing to what's judgmental. Now what's characteristic of the judgmental mind is that there's both noticing and reactivity. It's the reactivity that is really connected with the suffering. You know, I see someone acting at a party, and I say, that person's really rude right, or obnoxious, right? And I have an edge to it. I could make the, uh, something like the same observation or uh, discernment, and it could be made in a more compassionate way. I might not use the word rude, so, so language use is going to be very key when we study the judgmental mind. I might use words like, oh, that person is really acting inappropriately. I wonder what's with that person, right? Might be more compassionate and empathic. Same noticing, almost, almost the same noticing, right? But one is judgmental, one is compassionate or empathic. Uh, and that's important because the aim of working with the judgmental mind is to make use of the noticing or the observation of the discernment, which can be very important. You know, I might have a noticing about a political situation. Very important to notice that. Very important to notice that person acting this way. Important to notice how the driver is driving. Might be 
unsafe in some way, but the reactivity tends to be connected with the suffering. I can notice something about myself and get really down on myself. I can notice something about someone I'm interacting with and be very reactive and we can trade judgments back and forth and both get on the defensive and not talk to each other for two years, right? We know that. So um, let me hear some of your examples expressed as a judgmental one sentence or phrase. Could be like, that person is tailgating me. Oh, so close, so unsafe, right? Okay. Um, let's let's hear a few examples. And again, the key that just like we did last time is going to be listen for where's the discernment. Listen for the discernment. Listen for the reactivity. And how do you notice the discernment? It's going to be maybe in the body expression, the tone of voice, and so forth. So a few examples, um, please. Remember, just just one sentence. Feeling frustrated. No, say it as if you're actually saying it in your own mind. Okay. I can't believe he's still thinking wrongly about his effect on others. That yeah. he's so messed up in judging himself. He's so messed up in, ju- in judging himself. And of course, I think you moderated somewhat the tone there. Yeah, you can feel it inside. And we actually want to, when we say these, like even for myself with a tailgate, I want to shake it out. You know, I want to shake it out after we say it, right? So, because I'm inviting you to a kind of a, a state of mind that has its effects, right? So, uh, please, Juanita. She's in, <clears throat> excuse me, she's insensitive. She's insensitive, right? And again, we can listen for the tone of voice. We might even say something like that without reactivity or judgment, that might be more empathic or compassionate, right? Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> These people are such pigs. Why don't they clean up after their dogs? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I think we, we got that. So, so the judgment's going to be what? Partly the choice of language will indicate it. We might use another word other than pigs if we were being compassionate. <laughs> right? And, and the tone of voice and so forth. And again, shake it out if you care to. Yeah. I can't believe that he doesn't put those darn cushions away after he sits in front of the TV all evening. <laughs> <laughs> right, so again, we can listen. Again, the key is listening for there's some noticing which could be valuable, right? And we could actually use that information and respond in a way that's not judgmental. That's ultimately what we want to do. We want to actually, all the work we're doing is going to transform the judgmental mind so we make use of the discernment, but for compassionate purposes. We don't want to throw out the judgment totally. Then we throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. The value of the judgment is the discernment. It's not simply negative. It's, it, it carries some gifts. And I, I mentioned... Uh, I think the first time, that uh, sometimes the judgmental mind is linked with the superego in psychology. And in the original work of Freud, he connected the superego with being ethical. Right? Like the judgmental mind has links with actually that which helps us to be ethical, which notices when we've messed up or tripped up. Of course, he noticed it could be quite destructive, but it also can be helpful. 
that, that uh, there is some information there, some intelligence. Please, maybe a few more examples. Oh, God, I can't believe I, I missed that cold. How, how insensitive of me. Yeah. Yeah, so self-judgment. Again, you hear there's some noticing, but can you hear the reactivity in that example that could really be linked with some suffering, right? Some suffering, some getting down on oneself. In the extreme, it could be part of a pattern connected with depression. Please. My leg is hurting while I'm walking. I am so old. Yeah. (laughs) Right, I am so old. And that could, you know, we we mentioned uh, the last few times how judgments are sometimes more identified with what comes up in interpersonal relationships or in something happens to ourselves. But there are a whole set of judgments that are related to social conditioning. That we have social conditioning that are connected, that's connected with the judgmental mind for most of the major social groupings. And it gets particularly uh, dangerous uh, when it's linked with power and hierarchy. You know, and so we have ones related to, we have judgments related to race, ethnicity, gender, and age, right? And uh, those people who are, I don't know, older than, what, uh, 50, 60, 70, may notice that conditioning. And that, I think we could probably trace that in that comment. Some, you know, that uh, be, being older, is, you know, the simple version of it is not good, right? Right, and that can that can find its way into the judgment as well. So we want to, as we're looking, also see is there a component of social conditioning? <clears throat> Maybe uh, <clears throat> how many have to get these judgments off our chest, so to speak? We'll have two more, okay, uh, Marty, and then in the front, yeah, please. Here I am cleaning up the kitchen again. It was his turn. <laughs> okay, so here I am cleaning up the kitchen again. It's his turn. A small amount of social conditioning might be related to this, <laughs> you know, and, and role, social roles and so forth, and gender. And so in that example, you can see how the interpersonal dimension uh, of judgment links with the social conditioning around judgment, right? Not necessarily. You know, it could just, there could, you know, you, could, you and he could have totally worked out all your gender conditioning totally thoroughly, right? And, could, and it could just be that it might, there might be no dimensions of social conditioning present at all in this situation, but it's highly unlikely. <laughs> why is that fifth grade boy having a tantrum in the public? Yeah, why is that fifth grade boy having a tantrum in the public? So, okay, so uh, thank you. And remember to shake it out if you care to. <laughs> Shake it out collectively, uh, and can you could you hear those different pieces that we're talking about? The uh, some noticing that could be important and helpful. You don't want to. We don't want to say, "Oh, I'm going to get rid of the judgmental mind." So I'm just when I'm feeling judgmental, I'm just going to suppress it. That's going to get rid of the discernment or intelligence. Can be a, a temporary good step, you know. Very temporarily, if your you know if your judgment is just going to mess up the situation totally, and you can try to come back later and bring up the issue, but in the long run, we don't want to suppress the judgments because they carry intelligence, right? Sometimes of a moral nature, sometimes uh, other dimensions, um, <clears throat> and we want to in our in our work be able to uh, start seeing. You can see it, start seeing in others. 
uh, start seeing in oneself these dimensions, when we start seeing that uh, the judgment coming towards us may have some noticing or discernment, if we can get there, it's not so easy initially, it changes our perspective on it. Yeah. <clears throat> so we have, we have a sense of the nature of the judgmental mind. What we did uh, last time <clears throat> was we explored two basic ways of transforming the judgmental mind. Uh, and I'll, those two are first more directly going into the judgment. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. That is where we start noticing the judgmental mind in a variety of ways. We study it, we explore it, and ultimately we take it really, we go into the depths of particularly what is driving our more chronic judgments. And we can go very, very deeply into our own minds, our own psyches. And the transformation can be quite profound. And I, as I've mentioned, I find that working with the judgmental mind is a doorway to profound transformation. If we follow the trail of judgments, we will be taken quite deeply. I've also mentioned how uh, people who are otherwise pretty amazing and wonderful often have strong residues of the judgmental mind. I've mentioned how in teaching uh, retreats, I find it very, very commonly present, including in people who've had 10, 20, 30 years of spiritual practice. Yeah, it, it needs sometimes focused attention or it doesn't get dealt with. And it's not necessarily dealt with even by a lot of meditation. It's interesting. It really points to something I'm quite interested in, which what are the necessary complements to traditional practice? that we need to work through our conditioning. You know, something I've been interested in, this is one of them. And, you know, what other kinds of investigations and practices do we need? I think there are a whole set of them, including looking at our social conditioning, working with, with that, you know, which I, I bring out from time to time. <clears throat> and I, I, I remember talking with one person who uh, had been a monk for 30 years. And I asked him, I was curious, he was probably, I don't know, maybe 60 years old, and I asked him, what's your edge of learning? Interesting to hear the response, right? And he said, I still really want people to like me. It was a very poignant, very poignant moment. There was something there that I think was connected with the roots of the judgmental mind, maybe not quite feeling uh, okay just in his own being, right? Even with years of spiritual practice. <clears throat> so I think it really uh, requires some focused attention for a lot of us uh, on its own. So there is this one pathway uh, that is that of directly looking at judgments, inquiring into them, seeing them more clearly, going beneath the surface, ultimately transforming them more directly. And I mentioned last time that there's also a second complementary path of transformation, which I speak of as a more indirect path, which we need uh, to be able to work with judgments. That is, that is this path of uh, developing what I've called awakened qualities, or developing the beautiful qualities of our being, developing mindfulness and loving-kindness, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, wisdom, 
And it's these qualities which partly, as we uh, rest more in these qualities, they actually can tell us, this is who you are. And this is actually who everyone is. That we are at our depths, beautiful beings of love and wisdom. No exceptions. And yet, uh, much of our lives, we don't believe that. We're, in a way, lost to ourselves, lost to our depths. And a lot of our practice is to take us further into those depths. And so the second path, which I think is complementary, is to cultivate these qualities um, and in, uh, that I call awakened qualities. And in my own teaching on judgmental mind, I particularly emphasize what we might call the heart qualities, the qualities of loving kindness, compassion, joy, forgiveness, gratitude, and equanimity, that these play a very important role in the work with judgments. And I I mentioned last time how I think of the role that they play in three main ways. They first give us um, a certain time of more or less hanging out with our own beauty, with beautiful qualities, which gives us a balance as we go into hard territories. That we need to we need to have a certain amount of resources because going to the judgmental mind is going to a certain degree of pain. No way around it. You know, and we can't just do that all the time. It's too much. You know, we can't just be hanging out with the difficulty. We need to hang out with wonderful states. And for some people, as I mentioned last time, when they want to go in the judgmental mind, actually the best thing to do is actually spend the first six months cultivating beautiful states. That could be valuable for some people. You know, but at a certain point, we go into that, but we need at times to come back and say, oh, you know, it's, this is a lot. You know, I really need to be with the forest, be with the mountains, be with the trees, be with the flowers, be with music, be with these beautiful inner states. And they give us the balance that helps us to work with the difficult states. This is generally true not just with judgmental mind, but with any difficult state. If we're working with a certain amount of anxiety or fear or anger, that's also very much uh, helpful. And then secondly, they give us uh, resources uh, that can help us to uh, shift away when we're stuck in the judgmental mind. We need to have tools that help us at 3 a.m. When I wake up, I think I've messed up yesterday. The judgmental mind is loud. When I summon mindfulness, it's of totally no use (laughs) because I'm caught. I'm stuck. And I I need ways of shifting out of that. And these states, when they're developed to sufficient strength, which uh, operationally I speak of as 10 minutes a day will get you there. Not too much, right? 10 minutes a day, they should be, if you really do it every day, they should be there when you need them at difficult moments. We need something at those difficult moments that helps us get unstuck so I don't stay immersed in the judgmental mind for the next three hours, which is debilitating, right? And just actually strengthens the judgmental mind. So I need something. I need my mindfulness to notice I'm being judgmental. And then I need these uh, uh, other states like loving kindness or compassion. A lot of people use something like self-compassion 
just telling myself, oh, this is really hard, you're trying hard, you're sincere, <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> and that can help me get unstuck. It's going to be different for each person. We need to have a repertoire of ways to get unstuck. And, and then the uh, third value is really what I pointed to earlier, is that over time, hanging out in these beautiful states shifts our identity and is, is a significant part of the response to the judgmental mind. So we partly work through the judgmental mind, we partly, as it were, change the topic. <laughs> and both actually are major ways of transformation. We need both. We need to really be with the, we need to be with the judgmental mind a lot, enough to notice how it manifests. <clears throat> so I'm going to focus the rest of the time on four steps in the direct transformation of judgments. And I'll probably get mostly through the first two and have uh, time to come back to the third and fourth uh, <clears throat> later. So we can look at our handout. And this, this is a kind of a map of how transformation occurs when we go more directly into it. And it's a map that I've modified from uh, a training map that I learned in a, a particular training in psychotherapy that I had once uh, in a method called the Hakomi approach to, it's really a, a form of body-based psychotherapy. Is anyone familiar with that? Right. Yeah, so some of you may recognize this. It's really, it's really a general model of going beneath the surface to what's unconscious. And we can see that the, the top of the uh, graph represents our normal, habitual level, kind of normal everyday life. Okay? And we, you'll see we come back there at the end. Along the way, we make a journey to the depths. We could say we go to the valley. You know? And this has uh, really four stages. The first stage really starts when we're still at the upper line before we've gone into this. And the first step I'm calling generally moving from kind of ordinary experience and starting to access what is deeper. And we can call that this for, I call this accessing judgments, this first stage. The second stage is when we're at the bottom of this valley, when we're actually in the presence of uh, what I'm calling core limiting beliefs, or that which generates our most regular and chronic judgments. And then the third stage is finding ways to reverse or to transform those chronic uh, core beliefs. And the fourth is then to stabilize and bring that transformation into daily life. Now, most of what we're going to focus on uh, today, certainly, and most of what we focus on in our practice is primarily one and two. And one and two can take three years, or it can take a shorter time. Depends on our ability to access our own inner experience. And, you know, and, you know, someone doing psychotherapy, doing a parallel track, it may take quite some time to get to the depth because one has to develop the relationship, develop enough trust to go more deeply, and so forth. And some of you know that process. So this is not necessarily a quick process. People who've done a lot of inner work through meditation and maybe psychological means and other ways, or maybe have looked at inner experience in relationships and in maybe in friendships and in work, sometimes can go 
deeply quite quickly. When I do one-week retreats on this theme, I find that most people can actually get to level two and level three within a week and can actually have significant shifts. If they're not always stabilized, number four, that can take a much longer time. But their tastes and their significant tastes of both what is generating our chronic judgments and what it might look like to transform them. So that's, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of time, which is the good news. Uh, but it sometimes takes the intensity of a retreat or something like that, or it takes a certain amount of focus and intensity. <clears throat> so let me say then some about these first two steps, and then we'll, we'll be able to share, because a lot of you have been working with this theme over the last few weeks, and I wanted to also give time to just share what we've been exploring as well as look at, look at questions here. <clears throat> Maybe I should just uh, make one point which could be helpful uh, to make a link between this work and our general Buddhist practice of mindfulness and loving-kindness and looking more deeply. Um, I'll, I'll do this briefly. One way that we talk about the direction of practice is we point, and I've given uh, talks on this uh, quite a few times, that we point towards having liberating insight. And in the tradition, it's liberating insight that frees us. This is one reason it's called insight meditation. And that traditionally, there's liberating insight into three areas. The first is the insight into impermanence. The second is in the insight into to the basic patterns of suffering and what causes us suffering. And the third area of insight is insight into the nature of the self, and particularly this teaching called not-self, or the way that we are not as isolated and independent as we think we are. And, and we can see how work with the judgmental mind ties particularly into the latter two, but also into the first one, in that uh, we, we know pretty clearly that the patterns of judgmental mind are one of the core patterns of suffering. That's not hard to see. And that in directing ourselves to work with this, we're really looking at one major way that suffering occurs individually, interpersonally, and socially. Right? That's not hard to see. And we can also see how often where there's a judgmental mind, there's what I call in kind of unpacking this question of the self, where we often have what I call a thick sense of self, where the sense of self gets very, very thick. In, in judgmental mind, there's often a sense of polarization. I'm really thick over here, and you're really thick over there, and we're just thickly interacting unskillfully with each other. <laughs> right? And so uh, we can see also how, as I've said, how, the, how looking into the judgmental mind is a very powerful way to look into the constructions of self, how our self has developed, how it developed out of childhood. Most of our chronic judgments have their origins when we were young. A lot of them have social conditioning as well. And so when we look deeply, we work with suffering. We look into the nature of the self very deeply. And we also, thankfully, can understand that our judgmental mind is impermanent. And we can transform it. It doesn't need to last forever. 
or in the, in the words of neuroscience, there's neuroplasticity, and the judgmental mind may have followed the same neural pathways like uh, two or three million times, but because of neuroplasticity, it doesn't have to be there forever. It's not our fate. We can change it. Good news. Ultimately, there's, ultimately our minds have the nature of freedom, even if the patterns are really, really established. That's the good news. Okay, so we, that can give a little bit of context for how this, can, I think, connects with traditional practice, but also makes use of contemporary resources to, to work with an aspect of our conditioning. Okay, so we start, we may start with the work on judgmental mind in this first phase of accessing judgments. We may just, I don't know, come today or say, my judgmental mind needs some attention. Or this can be an issue. And I mentioned how for me, you know, one of the doorways into it was really seeing my mind be really judgmental in a work situation where I had these regular meetings with a boss and I was highly judgmental towards him. Other people at work were as well. (laughs) I've talked about how a common pastime is, uh, in many settings, is what we might call judgmental commiseration. (laughs) Um, And so that was a wake-up for me. So maybe at a certain point we wake up and say, I need to look here. I need to look at these judgments, right? And that can be a starting point. That's really part of uh, phase one. And then we may, you know, we may find that we have a background in mindfulness and we, you know, there are many ways to work with judgmental mind. I think the capacities of mindfulness, compassion, care, probably are central to most approaches, even if they're, even if they're not using meditation per se, you know. And, and, and of course, mindfulness has been incorporated into psychotherapy in a profound way, you know, in so many schools of psychotherapy. But that noticing of what's happening is key. So we may be drawn, oh, I really, I need to look at this. You know, it may come from me, I might, you know, you may, <clears throat> you may come here and tell your significant other or family member, uh, excuse me, I think that you might really be helped by paying some attention to the judgmental mind. I'm just saying that with pure discernment, so don't worry. <laughs> Um, so for whatever reason, we start. So we start to track judgments. We start to notice them. We need these resources to get going. We need mindfulness. As I mentioned, we need to have heart practices to hold this all with compassion. At first, when we look a lot, it's going to be a little bit shocking. Unless we've looked a lot at judgments. It's going to be a little bit shocking. We're seeing it all the time. We're seeing our minds be judgmental because you know, the, as I mentioned in the, in the talk on neuroscience, the judgmental mind is very linked to the normal human tendency to categorize, to evaluate, to find patterns, and to have easy answers to complex issues. <laughs> That's one way of saying it. The judgmental mind gives us a very quick way, you know, I, I don't have to look at the complexities of the political situation. I just say, that person's bad. (laughs) 
it simplifies. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to do so much, right? It's very, makes things easy. You know, and I mentioned how the brain likes easy routines, right? So the judgmental mind follows those patterns. So we need the, we need these resources. We need to be aware that we're going to see a lot of judgments. So have a, have the heart practices working. We start tracking judgments. We start noticing them. I mentioned different ways that we start tracking them. We start being mindful. Sometimes it could be to just carry, you know, have a, you know, go, you go to a meeting, have a little pad where you track, oh, there's that judgment. You make the label, judgment. Keep on making it. You notice it. Keep on noticing. You start to track it. Then maybe when you have a little more time, maybe in meditation or at the end of the day, you, ex- you explore the judgment in a little more depth. You try to really feel what, what it's like. What does it feel like when the judgment's there? You see what it's like in the body. Very, very crucial. You start, um, <clears throat> oh, when, when I'm really judgmental, my body does this. My chest collapses a little bit. My, uh, I feel some tension in my body. Really study that. That often is the first way that you know that you're judgmental even though it, it manifests for most of us on a verbal level, right? So you start noticing that. You start studying it. You get interested, you know. Again, it can be sobering and even at times a little bit overwhelming to notice it. That's why we need the heart practices. Sometimes you need to take breaks, go on a judgmental holiday, you know, for a little while. You know, I remember someone came to me and saying, oh, you know, I'm just dealing with it so much. It's, uh, it's so... It's, it's difficult, you know, I'm feeling a little bit out of balance. And okay, okay, you know, go, go be with whatever brings you joy and beauty. And do it for a few weeks, then come back. Right, so we, we have these rhythms, you know, we have to, have to, stay, have to stay balanced. <clears throat> so we, 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 track the, we track the judgments, we start feeling them in our body, we start exploring them, we start seeing patterns. We start noticing, oh, there's a typical trigger for my judgment. Oh, look at that. You know, we start studying them. We, 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 uh, we study, okay, here are, my, here are my top five judgments, right? You notice them. You study them. You see what the triggers are. And we keep doing this. This is a way we, we explore it. Um, we, may, uh, we may see at a certain point, as I mentioned uh, last time, that... Uh, there can be, as we, uh, sometimes we can, as we use the body, we notice, oh, the, my body doesn't feel good. Or there's something about the judgment. I don't, you know, there's something behind it that doesn't feel good. I mentioned how with the boss that I was interacting with, uh, often I would be judgmental after I thought he wasn't listening to me and change the subject, you know. And then I would actually study that. I could notice, oh, that doesn't feel good. I started to notice that with the judgment, there's something that I generically call pain, meaning some unpleasant feeling or thought, like that doesn't feel good not to be listened to. Or we might notice, oh, you know, that driver's tailgating me. I'm judgmental. But then I drop down. You know, you want to do this uh, inner work, you know, maybe not always driving at 60 miles an hour. But, but let's say you come back and say, what was it about that? And you know, oh, gosh, it doesn't feel good. That feels unsafe, right? I don't feel good or I feel anxious or whatever. We sometimes can notice that there's a judgment, uh, that there's a kind of a pain connect with the judgment as we go down. That, is a, that can make a huge difference. Sometimes we can touch the pain and it actually shifts a little bit. 
I found with the boss when I was able to actually notice, oh, that doesn't feel good. Because previously the judgment was just automatic. He would change the subject and bam, I was kind of out of there, right? I was just went to the judgment and uh, kind of took myself out of the conversation. I, I mentioned that, that my pattern was to, just in a moment, go to a place of emotionally distanced moral superiority, you know, and hang out there and feel good about myself, <laughs> right? But, uh, but I was out of there. I wasn't really present anymore. And so at a certain point, as I studied this more, we can cert- sometimes, sometimes this happens in meditation, sometimes after the fact, as we do it more, it can happen in the moment. I, saw, I would, I would want to see the moment before I started being judgmental. And sometimes I could actually just notice it in the moment and notice the tendency to be judgmental. And then I know, oh, that doesn't feel good. There's some pain, you see. It was hidden, kind of beneath the surface. Logically, we would know it doesn't feel good. But experientially, it takes some attention. And then I could notice, oh, that doesn't feel good. And when I noticed that, I could notice my mind tending to be judgmental, but it wasn't so automatic. And then as I actually noticed it didn't feel good, I could actually have the possibility of responding skillfully because I wasn't automatically going to the judgment. There's a technique that I learned once from a friend that you may, you may know that's used sometimes in interpersonal relations in sort of groups where people, when something happens, like you get a judgment from someone, one says, ouch. Does anyone know that technique? You, you know, a friend, a friend said, you know, I, would, I was with her and I would say something and she would say, ouch. And I would say, what do you, you know, what do you mean? And that didn't feel good. And I thought it was, originally I thought it was kind of cute, California cute, new agey, you know. But uh, it actually is highly skillful. It's basically saying there's something unpleasant happening. And from the meditative point of view, we know that when the unpleasant is there and we're not aware of it, we will tend to be reactive. And so when you say ouch, you're actually bringing mindfulness and saying that's unpleasant with the assumption that I won't automatically go to reactivity. And so that can be very helpful as we investigate the judgment. See if there's a moment where there's unpleasant experience there. See if you can work with it. See if you can notice it. I found when I noticed it, I wasn't so automatically going to the judgment. It gave me a little bit of space to respond, you know, either to myself or to another. And this is all part of the exploration. So there's a lot here we explore. As we go more deeply, we start to have a sense and this is getting into phase number two, or step number two, we start to have a sense that there are certain judgments which follow a regular pattern, or that are unified in a certain way. We may see these as judgments where I'm down on myself. You know, where I just go, I, you know, that there's a, a familiar pattern. I get a lukewarm job evaluation, and I just go, to, I go into a funk. I go into a kind of a, you know, uh, a funk, a fog, a cloud, a trance. <laughs> and, and when we're in that kind of trance, uh, Tara Brock talks about the trance of unworthiness. Nice phrase. That some of our more chronic judgments, either in towards ourselves or towards others, 
we'll go into a certain place that actually is very familiar, but as, that is typically unconscious. And we'll start to have a sense that this is very, very familiar. How many can relate to what I'm talking about? Yeah. And we can start to have a sense of this territory. <clears throat> many of our most regular judgments of self or other are linked with patterns that were set up a long time ago, either from our family situation and conditioning or some of them from the society. And part of the work of judgments is to start to disclose them, start to notice them. Ultimately, to notice them clearly, notice what they're like when they're powerful, and transform them. They're, they, because they've been around for a while, they're very, very old patterns. The neural grooves are well-worn, you know, and they're very familiar, and they can really take us away for periods of time. <clears throat> One way of describing these patterns that I have found useful is to talk about core limiting beliefs. Other people use different language. Some psychologists use the word schema. And these are patterns that are uh, very regular and typically very old. And I, you know, I, I've given certain, certain uh, regular examples. I've given, I think, the example last time someone is conditioned at age four not to be angry. Anger is suppressed. That person will develop the regular chronic judgment when angry, oh, I'm bad. You know, anger's bad. We'll develop that towards oneself. It's, it's, as it were, programmed at age four. At age eight, it's firmly established. The person will judge himself or herself. Uh, at age eight, I get angry. Oh, I'm bad. You know, or uh, look at another kid in the schoolyard. Person's getting angry. Oh, bad person. Angry. Shouldn't be angry, right? That, uh, and then that, you know, let's say just proceeds, that's a, that, that becomes a chronic form of judgment. It gets repeated, you know, a few hundred thousand times. At age 30, age 40, age 50, the person come, comes to Spirit Rock or, you know, is in a relationship where the person says, I think you have anger issues, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Person, and then the person starts to look at that. But, and then we'll come, maybe it'll take quite some time, we'll come to see, oh, I have what I'm calling a chronic core limiting belief, anger is bad. That, in a way, the psyche believes, it learned it at age four, and it unifies that person's experience. So again, we can call these core limiting beliefs. The word belief is a little bit misleading because these are not consciously held. So I'm kind of looking for some other language. So if you come up with any, you can... Schema is a word that's used to mean the same thing. And, and there are a number of different forms of... Uh, a number of different patterns. You know, I can have a pattern, you know, something that I've seen in quite a number of people where there was a divorce when the person was a child. The person will form a, form a limiting belief in the mind or a schema. Uh, uh, I can't get close to people because they will leave me. And that becomes very influential in relationships, right? Uh, and that becomes like a limiting belief that unifies that person's experience. And 
we start we start to become aware of these patterns. You know, some other patterns might be, you know, some that I was working with people just in the last week with. One pattern was a person who's in the midst of uh, deciding on careers and finds that there's some limiting belief saying, if I really do what I want, I'll be poor and miserable. <laughs> you know, right? Right, that got formed maybe, and you can see probably social conditioning, you know, and that, and as the person investigates and doing a lot of deep inner work with judgments, finds there's something like that inner belief there, right? And it's coming up and leading to a lot of suffering related to career choices. Another person uh, that I worked with them last week found in looking deeply at patterns of interaction and judging others, saying, found this person has a core belief limiting belief, uh, I need to be right. Anyone have that? <laughs> okay. okay, just a, I, I think there were just a few hands that went up. I suspect that if I, <laughs> if, if we had, if I ask everyone to be totally honest and close your eyes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, c- could you hold it until uh, we, we're going to talk in just a moment. You okay with that? Yeah, okay. So you get, you get a sense of these core beliefs, right? So this person found, I have a core belief, I need to be right. You know, and that maybe give, give one other example. Uh, person found in the context of relationships that there was a core limiting belief, I'm going to mess things up. You know, something maybe that happened from painful experience in the past. So you get a sense of what these limiting beliefs are. They can be about oneself. They might take the form of, I'm not okay, I'm not adequate. Again, these are not thoughts that we consciously think, but they're beneath the surface. That's why I say that using the word belief is a little bit misleading because they're not necessarily conscious and they're not, they're really, uh, they have a cognitive dimension, but they're really deeply rooted they often sound very young because they, were, they came about at a young age. They often can be said in one sentence. So they might be about oneself, I'm not okay, I shouldn't express my emotions, I'm not okay as I am, you know. I'm talking about negative ones. We also had a certain number of positive ones as well. You know? uh, we're mostly focusing on the negative ones here. They can also be about relationships like my needs will not be met, when I get close to people, they will leave me, they will abandon me, and so forth, right? Do you have a sense? They can also be about the world. I can't trust people. The world's dangerous, right? I have to be careful, right? And so as we investigate judgments, and probably that's probably all I'm going to say right now. We'll have to say a lot. We can say more about this. Part of the work, and this can take, this isn't something that we think out intellectually. Although sometimes that can help a little bit. It's not so much we think, okay, what's my limiting belief? Let me think about it. (laughs) It's really more explored, the way I work with people, it's more explored experientially. But having the framework can be helpful, right? Because that probably makes some sense. Intellectually, we can understand how that would be the case, right? And so part of the work with judgments is that we start to get a sense of these deep roots beneath our chronic judgments. And this can take some time. And you can also see how we need to have the resources of compassion and care to go into this territory. 
it's not, it's a painful territory. <clears throat> and we need to have those resources. We need to also go slowly, but this is where the inquiry goes. And then as we get more in touch with us, I'll just finish by saying, as we get more in touch with these deep roots of the judgmental mind, it becomes possible to notice them more quickly, not be so caught in them, and then along the way move into what I've called the third and fourth steps of transformation, where we actually have reversals, where we start strengthening ways of being that deliberately reverse or transform the particular judgments we're caught in. And this is possible. And it can be that transformation can occur and we can get then stabilize those transformations in daily life. <clears throat> this, is, this is not easy work, uh, but I think having the map, I think, can be helpful, right? And the main thing is to stay connected to others. I find it really important to do this work with others because we find that the patterns are very, very similar in all of us. If we're isolated with judgments, we think that I am uniquely flawed and problematic. <laughs> and so it's really important to be connected, to do the work, to, and to spend time with the beautiful qualities. I think I'll end here, and, or shift here, and invite any uh, questions or discussion. I think it was uh, the, the the comment was about adults feeling that they need to be right. Yeah. They met somebody. Um, I, that seems to be more of a something the little ones, you know, children have yeah. that. Like I have a, t- a boy who just turned eleven yesterday. Yeah. And he's like that. <laughs> he's like that. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Well, quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we. Um, what we can do, each of us will have uh, certain patterns <clears throat> for our own, the places we get stuck the most. And it may not be that. That's, some of them, uh, you know, that person who I was talking about who said, I have a deep core belief of I need to be right, probably three years ago wouldn't have said that that was the case. You know, so there's, I guess the point here is there's a lot beneath the surface. There's a lot that we actually need to inquire and just follow the trail of our most regular judgments. And that will take us, that will take us to see what we need to see. Yeah. Um, I, what uh, resonated for me is uh, you discussing the neural grooves yeah. that are well-worn. And I'm a follower of Rick Hansen's work as well. Yeah who has a meditation tonight at Dominican, which is really good. But what I, what I see is, yes, there's no reason for me to go over my judgments 100,000 times. And cre- not only do they become grooms, they become absolute ditches that I fall yeah. into, and I can't get out. Yeah. And I know they're there, and I, what was interesting is also childhood patterns. My culture, growing yeah. up essentially Irish Catholic yeah. in this county, they inculcate certain judgments onto you that yeah. are not easy to extract. Yeah. And this is the work, and meditation is... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so what, we're, what, we're, what I'm offering, really, and coming out of work with a lot of people, and about the, almost the last 15 years of working with this, uh, with others, and 
you know, done a lot of years of my own work before this, is, uh, again, I think it's very uh, much aligned with Rick Hansen's work, you know, and uh, uh, really very much based in, in the neurosciences, but it's, it's essentially these are well-worn grooves, but they're not our fate. But we need, we need resources to see them. We need, the, you know, we need to have the mindfulness, we need to have the heart qualities and the compassion to hold this, because it's not a, not a pleasant territory. We need, and, and we need to see them, and our mindfulness helps to see them as soon as possible. What we want to do with our practice is to see them as soon as possible, <clears throat> you know, when we've, quote-unquote, fallen into the ditch, so we can get out of the ditch. You know, and then uh, sometimes... You know, we we are we are in the ditch, and we are still uh, repeating things to ourselves, and we can study those and see what that's like. So we want to have ways to get out of the ditch if we're really stuck. And then when we're just when we're not so stuck, we can actually study the pattern. We need to study the patterns well enough so that we can recognize it as soon as possible when they arise. Beyond that, I don't. We don't have to continually study it. Once we once we get it. We, enough to be able to see it clearly. So we don't have to do 10 years of repetitive psychotherapy looking at my judgments. I think we need to know it enough to really see it clearly when it appears. But then also, the having the ability to access the judgments and be with them and study them, it's their, their techniques, which we haven't used here, which actually help us to explore what the core beliefs are. Because it's helpful to know what those old beliefs are, and to identify them, and to kind of uh, transform them, basically. Just quickly, uh, yeah. Rick Hansen was saying on KPFA yesterday, yes, it's one thing to identify these yeah. judgmental, it's another thing to install a new, right. um, a new belief system. He was saying, yeah, you can go through 10 years of psychotherapy, yeah. but you're not until the, he, call, he used the word installation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that would correspond to what I have for for phase three, <clears throat> but I think there are two aspects because actually when we're being mindful or compassionate of the judgments, we're actually uh, there. There are different neural pathways. When there's mind, you know, we we sometimes say mindfulness of anger is not anger. Mindfulness of judgments is not judgmental. And so there's actually some installation happening even as we're mindful and compassionate of judgments. So that's part of it. And then there's also a way to, uh, you know, to develop uh, alternative, we can call them uh, transformed beliefs if we wanted to use that language, but transformations of the judgmental mind. So for example, that person, we didn't get there in the work that I did on these, the ones I mentioned, but we could see that the person who uh, has the old, the chronic core belief, I have to be right, could easily start consciously shifting to a sense of, let me be in dialogue, <laughs> you know, or let me, you know, I want to, I want to, uh, I want to listen and have my sense of truth come from dialogue. That could be something like, that could structure a different way of being with others, which would almost have different neural pathways. You know, or I, you know, I might temporarily say, I want to really listen. You know, I know one pattern, uh, I think uh, I have only uh, small residues of the sense of needing to be right, personally. 
a joke. <laughs> uh, but I know for me a key practice that I did for a number of years, whenever I had a reaction to someone else's view, I took the practice on of saying, let me listen to this person and ask the question, what might I learn from this person? That's a kind of installation of a different framework, right? That's a different neural pathway. And that helped tremendously. So it's basically saying, I'm not going to the I need to be right uh, belief, but I, w- I want to find a different way of being with that situation. And I would ask the question, uh, can I really listen and say, uh, what's interesting about it? What can I learn from this person? I also would ask the question, why am I so reactive towards this person? Right? And those kind of questions can set up a whole different way of being, which is what you're pointing to. Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk more about that further point uh, when, we, when we go further with this model. Maybe time for one or two more if there are, then we'll finish up. <clears throat> said something um, early on that I'd like you to talk about a little bit more, which yep. was that, um, and the tailgater is the easy example, I think, yeah. that that you're, um, that reacting to, to a tailgater, there's some good information in that. Yeah. And then there's also uh, perhaps the not so helpful judgment that gets you down into that core belief. And, and I'd just like you to talk about that yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, it's the basic, the basic approach to the judgmental mind is that they're a mix of noticing or discernment and reactivity. And we want, we want to somehow preserve the noticing or reactivity. It's more obvious with those examples or with the judgments about a politician or judgments about injustice, right? We can be very reactive and see deeply into injustice, right? A lot of activists are in a judgmental, self-righteous state where they actually see something very important to see, right? I think the judgmental nature of some activists hinders them tremendously, right, and on multiple levels. You know, uh, and it's an, it's a, I've, I've done workshops for activists on the team of judgments where we, where we look at this. Um, some of the older judgments, like, I need to be right, that may be less obvious where there's some noticing. Uh, and we probably would have to go back to the age four to notice where there's some actually something accurate there. You know, or that, uh, uh, so I want to distinguish between those very, very old patterns where the noticing is less obvious. You know, maybe with anger, we would say the noticing, it's important for me to notice when I'm angry because I need to do what my parents say to survive, right? And so that's the noticing, you know. And, but it's a little bit different with some of the other examples where the noticing can be quite valuable. Someone's acting in this way. Someone is driving in an unsafe way. Well, that's important information. And the judgmental mind will uh, almost will say, because I'm seeing the truth, whatever I say or do is okay. If that's the inner logic of the judgmental mind. It's like, I got the truth. You know, anything goes. <laughs> it's almost like that, right? You know, uh, I can treat you however I treat you because I'm right. right? And so uh, it's the, the distinguishing of that. And then the transformative work on judgments will help us to be able to notice the discernment. So you could actually ask 
for the kind that are more like the judgment about the politician or a situation, a situationally based judgment where I'm noticing someone's behavior or the dishes, you know, to give that example, I could ask myself, what's accurate with my assessment? How could I separate that from my reactivity and come back again and talk about the dishes without reactivity? Right? That's a way of putting this into practice. Not so easy because we're reactive, but we could ask that question and say, let's assume I have something valid here, but the reactivity is going to make a mess of things. You know, can I ask myself, what's true here? Harder to do with someone else. Someone else judges you. Can I ask, what's valid with this person who's judging me? Because normally when someone judges us, we're just, you know, we're, we're on the defensive in like a split second, right? Right? And so how could I ask? So try it where it's easiest. Try it with people who you really love. <laughs> I don't know if that's the easiest. <laughs> uh, but try, try it in the situations which seem to be the least, the lowest degree of difficulty. You know, we do this with kids, right? We can do this with kids. We notice they're acting in a certain way, and we say, oh, I see where that kid's coming from. We don't, we don't worry about the judgment, right? See if you can do that with your friends and coworkers. See if you can do that when you're judging a politician. Ask, what's the discernment? And then try to feel the reactivity and um, this is part of the work we haven't done here. Try to go into the body and ask, what's the emotion or the pain beneath the reactivity? So those two things. This is a way to explore it further. When you're noticing yourself reactive and judgmental, ask two questions. What's the discernment, either for myself or another? And then, where is there some pain? I'll close by just saying, when I, when I did a sustained period of work, I got really interested in being around judgmental people. And I sought them out. And I would, uh, I would be interested in them because I could actually tune in to where there was some pain. And I wouldn't be so caught by the judgment. And that was very interesting. Do that when you, you know, watch the TV news and watch a politician. And again, that may be too advanced practice. Uh, but see if you can take some situation where you can say, let me tune into what's beneath the surface, which is going to be the person's coming out of pain. You know, you like that phrase we have sometimes we say, hurt people hurt people. Judgmental people are coming out of pain. Can you tune into the pain, your own pain, another's pain, and can you also notice the discernment? These are two ways to work to continue to work with judgment, which will take us towards going more deeply. Okay? Let's finish just by inviting the uh, intention for the next period of time. What intention comes out of my presence this morning? How do I want to work either with judgments or maybe something else was sparked for you? What are my intentions coming out of this morning? And then secondly, we close by knowing that we do this practice for ourselves, but also for others. And may our practice and the benefits of our practice 
be offered to ourselves, be offered to everyone in this room, and then be offered to all other beings. Ultimately, we offer our practice to all beings, and all beings includes us. So thank you so much. And uh, take notes, and we'll come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.